Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, and welcome to episode 253 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. We're here today with Shane Rock, the CEO of Interfaith Works. Shane is the former director of senior services at the Jewish Social Service Agency. He's a former director of the Refugee and Immigrant Service Centers at the Jewish Family Services. Shane is a former interim executive director at Ballard Food Bank and a former executive director of the Washington Low Income Housing Alliance. He's a former systems engineer at Real Networks and a former executive director of Good Neighbor Missions. Shane, it's a whole lot of work in social justice. Thanks so much for joining us today. How are you? Jordan, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Excellent. So the first thing I'd like to ask you is what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why? Oh my gosh, what a broad question. You know, I, I'm really, what drives me mm-hmm. is social justice. I mean, really, I came from a, a small, you know, a small community in upstate New York mm-hmm. where my parents' grocery store was the only business in the town. And I, mm-hmm. and I learned, you know, in my teenage years that community supporting neighbors in need is a really important thing. You know, there's no social service agency in the town where I grew up. Mm-hmm. So my parents' store really was the place that helped out when someone was injured on the job or when they were really ill. And I learned that, you know, that was an important thing. It was a really valuable thing and that not everybody had what I had. Mm-hmm. So I've tried in my life to focus on people who didn't have the opportunities that I had growing up. So, so to some extent, to whom much is given, much is expected. Exactly. And in college, you know, I, I went to the Oberlin College, which is this progressive school, and everybody graduates and wants to go out and change the world for the better. Right. And, and then you've actually done it. And I've tried <laughs> to do that. I've tried to do that. And the idea, you know, the idea there is really that if you have talent, you have a, you have a duty mm-hmm. to help people who have, do, have not had the fortune and good circumstances and luck mm-hmm. that you've had in life. So what I've tried to do really is take what talent I may have and what opportunities I may have had and help those who have been less fortunate. And so now in my career, I started out after law school. Um, I've, I've never practiced law, but I have a law degree. Mm-hmm. I, I went to, um, I started running a, a, a homeless shelter in rural Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And I did that was a good neighbor mission. That was a good neighbor mission. It was a really interesting learning experience. I'm 26 years old, and I have all this sort of philosophy in my head about it. How do they give a 26-year-old recent grad to be the executive director of this new homeless agency? That's pretty impressive right off the bat. Well, it, it had been around for a few years, uh-huh. but, but they, had this, they had this issue. And the issue uh-huh. was that the county was going to close the shelter they were operating. Oh. And so I think that was a disincentive to a lot of people. (laughs) (laughs) Would you like to be the executive director of a failing place that may be shut down in a few months? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. (laughs) So I came came in uh, to run a homeless shelter that had no shelter. Um, So so I was able to enter into an agreement with a local motel to help people. And over a three-year period grew from helping about 200 people a year, mm-hmm. primarily you know, people who really were living couch to couch, mm-hmm. who were, and this is in the late 80s, when homelessness 
that you didn't have the sort of safety net for people experiencing homelessness. This is the Reagan out. era. They're dismantling the great society projects, so there's less of a safety net. That's true, and 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 sort of the the idea of homeless services was still relatively in its infancy. It wasn't mm-hmm. quite as sophisticated as it is now. So really, what I was doing was, yeah, I wasn't a trained social worker, so I'm putting people in a hotel room at Mm -hmm. very low cost Mm -hmm. for one to say three nights, and I'm working with that family Mm -hmm. to help them figure out what they're going to do next. Mm -hmm. And I don't have much for resources. It's a small rural community, and really, just providing that shelter would Mm -hmm. give people enough of a breathing room to figure out what they needed to do. Uh What's an example of something they would have done? Well, as an example is uh, get in touch with relatives or get in touch with some or another friend who could help them longer term. Mm-hmm. Or they may be actually just about to start a job, so they haven't had any income in between. Yeah, jobs. it often takes like two or four weeks to get your first paycheck. Exactly. So they needed one to three nights or so to mm-hmm. tide them over where they really had no money mm-hmm. until they got to that paycheck. Mm-hmm. And so it was really sort of filling a gap mm-hmm. for folks. And over the course of three years, I was able to build that up to serving 800 people a year and having a HUD property uh, renovated to provide more longer-term care. Just to interject, these things. for our listeners, and, HUD is Housing and Urban and Development, which is a federal agency. That's correct. So how did you avoid having this thing shut down by the county? Well, we, I, uh, the county shut, actually shut down that facility, and oh. I partnered with a private motel okay. that needed business at a very low rate to provide housing temporarily there until I could get other housing around the county. Wow. And grow the budget. That's pretty impressive. So you were kind of living on the precipice as your clients were in a different way as an organization. <laughs> That's true. And I have to say the compensation was low enough that I did I did feel a little bit of what my clients were feeling. But the, the, the really interesting thing for me happened in my third year there. Yeah. Um, I, I had someone I've been working with the whole time who every once in a while mm-hmm. would would really would have run into trouble with his rent. Mm-hmm. And I'd help a little bit with the rent out of our, our funds uh, so that he, his wife, and his child were not evicted. Mm-hmm. And my third year there, I noticed he, he developed a bunch on his neck. And it was pretty bad. And I said, you're seeing a doctor, said yes. And, and I got to know him really well. Mm-hmm. He, he was really ostracized by the community because uh, he was in an interracial marriage. Mm-hmm. And this was, in that time, in this town, that still was a very, um, not a thing that everybody approved of. Well, interracial marriage was illegal in the 1960s, right? It was legal in the 80s when this happened. Oh. And so, it, I mean, no legality issues. This was really about community not, uh, not accepting. Right. And so, um, so I was, became... I was one of his friends in a sense that he could talk to me and other people didn't necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a period happened where um, a couple of weeks he didn't show up. And I was, what happened to him? Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew he had a, his wife was blind and then they had a young child and they lived down the street from my office mm-hmm. and I checked on them. And he died. Mm-hmm. He, and he was one of, you know, he died from AIDS. Mm-hmm. And... Um, what that said to me was, even though I was helping any way I could with rent and things like that, that wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. And that 
it's really important to help a person across from you and all the work you do as a in a in an organization trying to change the world but you also need to have the the systems change the advocacy aspect to it mm-hmm. and so i started getting very involved in trying to advocate for people experiencing homelessness helping to um to found the the tennessee coalition for the homeless mm-hmm. and giving an interview with the new york times designed to expose the the at that time relatively hidden phenomenon of people experiencing homelessness in rural areas. Huh. So I've tried in my career since then to carry forward this idea of service combined with advocacy and systems change in order to impact more people. Service and systems change and advocacy. So you're in charge of a very large organization now. We're going to skip forward mm-hmm. in time. You, you, those were your very beginnings down in Tennessee. You jumped through a number of different organizations. You end up in Seattle. You're about now in the D.C. area. We're sitting in your office in Rockville, Maryland. You're the executive director. You're the CEO of Interfaith Works. Tell me a little bit about what Interfaith Works is, how it incorporates advocacy, systems change, addresses homelessness, uh, food insecurity. What's going on here? What, are, what operation are you running? And, and, and tell me the story of this organization. Right, this is an amazing organization. It's been around for 45 years. Mm-hmm. It was founded by the community. Hmm. A group of pastors in 1972 saw issues regarding people uh, not having housing, not having the basic their basic needs met by the community, and they brought the community together to found Community Ministries of Montgomery County, the mm-hmm. predecessor to Interfaith Works. Mm-hmm. Uh, that organization has grown over the years. We now provide emergency assistance to people facing eviction or loss of utilities. Mm-hmm. We provide financial education. We provide uh, all kinds of housing services from emergency shelter and outreach to people who may be living in the woods or in a tent mm-hmm. to, pe- uh, to more permanent housing. Uh, provided uh, to folks at a reduced cost and we provide the tools and the skills uh, for people to help them become more independent. Mm-hmm. We also focus on empowerment. So we it's not our goal for people to be dependent on our services over time. Our goal is for people to move to independence so they can take care of themselves. And what does that time horizon look like? Well, it depends on the family or the individual. It really does. Some people just need a one-time temporary help. You know, they're facing uh, a utility cutoff because they experienced a medical emergency. Mm-hmm. We help one time, they're back on their feet, and they go on. Mm-hmm. Others have experienced poverty in a cyclical way for many years, mm-hmm. and they may need more uh, hand-holding mm-hmm. to find their way. So we're really, we're trying to be appropriate, mm-hmm. not provide more help than necessary, but provide the help that is needed. Mm-hmm. And so we do things, too, that are really important, like uh, helping out with budgeting, helping out with preparing people for a job, for mm-hmm. vocational uh, job readiness training. Mm-hmm. We do uh, English as a second language. All these things help people to be more confident in their abilities and their and have the skills they need to become more independent in their lives. So it seems like you're promoting self-sufficiency, independence, and dignity. That's right. So, okay, so what are some of the... Uh, and then you said you're also involved in advocacy as well. We are. So we, uh, we advocate in the, on the local and state level on issues affecting people experiencing poverty or homelessness. Mm-hmm. So we're particularly... Um, 
we're mindful of things like healthcare, mm-hmm. uh, uh, wages, mm-hmm. all those things. So we engage in conversations around those issues, mm-hmm. and we will advocate when it's appropriate. Right. Um, in terms of systems change, we are involved in conversations uh, with the county, in particular, mm-hmm. around food security, around poverty, uh, creating, helping to create a strategic plan on poverty for Montgomery County. Mm-hmm. We're working on a number of things to try to create a more scalable approach to helping more people mm-hmm. become more, uh, achieve economic mobility and self-sufficiency. Now the population of Montgomery County is growing rapidly mm-hmm. uh, and a number uh, figure that politicians often use to refer to the growing wealth disparity in this county, which includes among some of the wealthiest people in the country uh, and, and has some of the wealthiest jurisdictions, but also has um, a fair amount of poverty, is that one in three students are eligible for free and reduced meals in the schools, which is an indicator that their families, their parents, a lot of other individuals are also food insecure, housing insecure, that there is a problem with homelessness. Uh, And of course, politicians often say, well, you know, Montgomery County, at least in the state legislature, is viewed as the pocketbook for the rest of the state um, as a source of wealth. Can you speak about how, uh, especially legislators in Annapolis or elsewhere in the state, receive your message that some people are struggling in Montgomery County and uh, what needs to be done to ameliorate uh, this poverty for this increasingly diverse population? I mean, that's really, that's a, <laughs> that's a great question. Uh, I think that there is a sort of perception of Montgomery County as not having any issues mm-hmm. because of the wealth here. But, the, the, but in reality, we have a great deal of income disparity mm-hmm. within the county. And uh, so you have great wealth in certain areas, and then you have pockets of poverty. Mm-hmm. And that's borne out by the statistics. So what we've been trying to do is help our state legislators, legislature, legislators be be armed with the statistics they need to be able to talk with their colleagues. Right. So for example, one of the things we look we've looked at is, you know, Montgomery County ranks in the top three counties in Maryland in terms of per capita income. Mm-hmm. And uh, up with Howard County and Carroll County. But it's that said, uh, in 2015, we only had the sixth lowest poverty rate in the, in the state. Mm-hmm. So in other words, there were five other counties that had lower poverty rates than Montgomery County, even though we have all this wealth. Right. So this is this disconnect right. between the wealth and the struggles of some of the population here. And in fact, in the 2015 numbers... And by tw- the way, mm-hmm. just to interject for our listeners, there are 24 counties in Maryland. So when you say that we're the six from the lowest or we're the top three, that just gives context 24. Okay. Yeah. So we, we have a ways to go to match the lowest poverty rate in Maryland. Mm-hmm. And so I started thinking about that and realized that for Montgomery, Montgomery County in 2015 had an estimated 76,000 family as uh, household, mm-hmm. people living in households earning less than the federal poverty level, which is about $24,000 for a family of four. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so that's about 7.6%, 7.5% of the population in Montgomery County mm-hmm. below the poverty line. In Carroll County, the poverty rate's 4.3%. So we, there's this, other counties are doing better in terms of having less of their population in poverty than Montgomery. Mm-hmm. When you look at Montgomery County, it's a lot of people. It's almost twice as bad here as a proportion yeah. of the population. As a proportion of the population, that's exactly right. So we, ha- we have this need here. And the, the rest of the state 
you know, doesn't recognize that. Mm -hmm. So it, it is very important, you're right, to sort of to make that case uh, to the state legislature because how, um, how we distribute state dollars, mm -hmm. how we allocate those dollars is really important to being able to fight poverty across the state. Mm -hmm. In Montgomery County, what we need to do is really enable families to have access to two things that they generally don't have mm -hmm. when they're struggling. One is people to support them, extended family, neighbors, community. We need to do more to help families in poverty build community to support each other. So that's part of the role of interfaith works. You're kind of that, that temporary support network to bridge them over into others. That's right. And helping families really identify who their connections are. Mm -hmm. You know, who are the families who can, who they can uh, trade uh, rides with, mm -hmm. who they can cook with, who they can work with in their community in terms of supporting each other. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. The second thing is that families generally access, uh, lack access to financial capital. Mm -hmm. That is loans, grants, scholarships, money that they can use to move themselves forward. Because right. most of these families know what they need, yeah. but they don't have those resources to, to invest in a tutor for their child who's struggling in school. Mm -hmm. They don't have the money to get that certification course at Montgomery College that's going to help them move along in their career. Mm -hmm. Those are the kinds of things that change a family's trajectory in terms of their economic future. Right. And so we're working very hard on scalable ways, ways where we can affect lots of families by making these things available to them. So how does how do how does Interfaith Works access that capital? How do you generate funding? Are you county funded? Are you philanthropically funded? How are you able to access these financial resources, which as you mentioned in the beginning of your career, were somewhat scarce. There was a dearth of resources for you. You shut down the actual homeless shelter in the beginning, and then they weren't remunerating you too well for your efforts. <laughs> so how are you funded today? Well, we do receive a good, a good bit of government funding. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the majority of our funding does come from government sources. That said, the money that enables us to be innovative, the money that enables us to to go beyond what those contracts provide for comes from the community, mm -hmm. from foundations, corporations, individuals, businesses. That's the money that allows us to do the things that really enable people to lift themselves. Montgomery County is an amazing partner in enabling us to serve this community, uh -huh. and the contracts that we have with the county enable us to provide the shelter services, to provide housing, to do many, many things. Thank goodness this is a very... Um, uh, a county that comes together to support those in need mm -hmm. and we need everyone to continue doing that and, and hopefully step up even more. So I'm interested in jumping back mm -hmm. into sure. your personal story, Shane. Mm -hmm. you, uh, we started in the very beginning of your career. Now we've, we've discussed a little bit of what you've been doing since 2014. Did you ever think about using your law degree? You've always been in social justice uh, moving from one place to the other across the country, how, walk me through your your career decisions. What brought? I mean, how you be, even became aware? How you how you moved here from one agency to the next? Sure. Well, some of it's happenstance, of yeah. course. But I, there's a common thread, and the common thread is I I'm really I'm someone who believes in you know rooting for the underdog. Yeah. And uh, and helping people 
in need through a servant leadership approach. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my idea of justice is fairness. Mm-hmm. And so I it it pains me whenever I see something that I feel is unfair. Mm-hmm. And um, so what I've done, what I've tried to do is move into positions that have enabled me to focus on some of the neediest, the, the people with the greatest needs in communities where I've served. So um, we have spoken mm-hmm. about a support network uh, and, a, and a safety net, which was lacking in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. On Public Interest Podcast, I've interviewed many other of your peer safety net organizations in Montgomery County. We've had Manafu, we've had Bethesda Cares, a wider <laughs> circle, Community Ministries of Rockville. How is it that all these organizations are coordinating their efforts? We all, I, we all meet regularly and we all work together on collaborative Efforts. Mm-hmm. So we're there's a there are many many common sort of approaches that we're we come together. We recognize that we have this amazing brain trust mm-hmm. among the leadership of nonprofit organizations in Montgomery County. Mm-hmm. So uh, the people you just mentioned, we all participate in things like the uh, developing the the food security plan mm-hmm. that was developed in the county last year. Uh, that MANA helped uh, uh, and the Food Security Council helped uh, put together with the county. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was an effort that involved many, many organizations and lending their, their thoughts, their ideas, and their, um, their goodwill. Mm-hmm. So now we are, many of us are involved in workforce development, early child care and learning efforts, uh, poverty efforts, mm-hmm. along the same lines to figure out how can we collaboratively, collectively, mm-hmm focus our efforts to be more effective in this community, and how do we measure the outcomes of those efforts so that we're holding ourselves accountable? And what are some of, I mean, how do you mm-hmm. present to the county what their ROI is? How do you present to these philanthropists? Well, you know, your money has been successful in getting these families permanently off the street, but then you say, but look, there are all these other families that are chronically indigent, and they're chronically having, you know, medical emergencies and food insecurity, and, and they were here last year, and they were there five years ago, and thanks for your contribution, they'll be here next year. How do you pit, make that argument to a donor agency or individual? Well, you don't make that argument. Really, really the argument is about systems, is about changing things to be more effective based upon data. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think we as a county are a very data-driven county and an outcome-driven county. Mm -hmm. So we, none of us are, have the patience to put up with not helping people move out of chronic situations to the extent they can. Mm Um, so we are focused, we, meaning everybody mm-hmm. in the county, I think right now are focused on efforts that are supported by outcomes. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in terms of reducing um, food uh, insecurity, mm-hmm. we're looking at making, you know, measuring access to food for people who were in, you know, quote-unquote food deserts where there wasn't much access to healthy food, particularly in East County. Mm-hmm. In terms of poverty, we get a report card every September from the U.S. Census Bureau when they issue their annual estimate of people in poverty in Montgomery County. And I'm happy to report that from the 2016 numbers, literally we released in the last two weeks, and the poverty rate, the estimate, has mm-hmm. gone down from 7.6% to 6.7%. So is it fair to say that we're on the path towards beating poverty? Well, no, I think that's that's probably stretching it a bit too much. And I'm, and I'm not sure what beating means entirely, but... We're making progress, we're making progress. at reducing poverty. Right. 
But we have to have, be a little careful on how we talk about that because we've been in an economic recovery since 2009 officially, mm-hmm. right? So eight-year recovery. Uh, so the rising economy lifts all boats, and it does affect people on the lower rungs of the income uh, range eventually. Mm-hmm. We're just starting to see that impact now. Mm-hmm. So what we're seeing is a combination of all the efforts of the nonprofit organizations and the county and, and government supports mm-hmm. coming together to help many families combined with an economy that's conducive to people being more economically self-sufficient and finding uh, jobs that support their families. Mm -hmm. If the economy turns, Mm -hmm. that becomes much more difficult. So you have to take that into a relative account. And when we talk about things like ending poverty or ending homelessness, we have to recognize that ending those scourges is not does not mean there's no one in poverty or no one experiencing homelessness. Mm-hmm. There are temporary fluctuations in income in a family's uh, income. Someone's ill. Someone mm-hmm. loses a job. There's a temporary relapse into a lower income uh, run for that period of time until they recover. Mm-hmm. And same is true with homelessness because people can experience temporary homelessness before they're reconnected to housing. Right. So. When you think of an unemployment, for example, a full unemployment is around 3 or 4% unemployment. Mm-hmm. That's the general right measure. I think we're making progress towards making a stay in poverty temporary mm-hmm. and something that families can recover from very quickly. That's really, to me, one of the most important developments is that we are creating not just a safety net that catches people so that they they don't starve, so that they don't you know lose their home, but we're actually creating more like a, a quick a trample, rebound. yeah, a quick rebound, a trampoline that people can can raise themselves up from quickly. Got it. Because they have the skills and the confidence to do that, and the hope. So, Shane, as we approach the end of this podcast, mm-hmm. a final two part question. I'd like to ask you to reflect uh, on your career uh, in social justice uh, and opine for a minute on what your motivations have been, uh, what others, uh, well, again, let's start with that. What have your motivations been, given that you have sacrificed much, obviously coming out of Vanderbilt with a JD, you could have done uh, better in terms of a salary than moving to work for a homeless shelter. So, so what have your motivations been, and then what do you hope your legacy might be after having spent these decades in in uh, social justice? That's a. I have to say, I not to disparage my my classmates at Vanderbilt, but they they were one of my greatest motivators. Many of many of my classmates, many of my classmates went on to do uh, great things with their communities. But many of my classmates in law school wanted to go off and earn a tremendous amount of money and did. Mm-hmm. And that uh, bothered me. And so that was a motivator to me to, to go off and perhaps make some sacrifices to help others. I've, you know, I, I feel when I'm helping people, it makes me feel good. Mm-hmm. I think we have an innate need as human beings when we're in touch with ourselves to help others. Because we recognize the humanity in each other, and that is what brings us together and, and actually defines us as human beings. Money is something that allows you to buy pleasure and lots of other things that are, that are important in life and, and the basic needs. But money doesn't necessarily bring fulfillment. Mm-hmm. 
And so there are many ways for people to find that, to, find, to help each other. We have more than 10,000 people in Montgomery County volunteer for interfaith works each year. Hmm. They give back. It's an army. It's an army. And it's not because we're compelling anyone to do that. It's not because we're throwing parties for them. It's because by giving, they gain something. By serving others, we gain something. By doing that in my life, it's given me more than I've ever given anyone else. We're working on a program that we hope to launch next year where we will actually measure the gifts that people in experiencing poverty or near poverty give to other people mm-hmm. and put a value on that. Where this has been tried in other places around the country, the people who are in, would be considered in need mm-hmm. by the, you know, the larger community, the people who are, are sort of, who are the ones going to social service agencies, they're giving more than they receive. Hmm. They give to other families in need. They understand perhaps better than many of us why it's important to give to their neighbors. Mm -hmm. And by giving, they help themselves. That's the spirit. So that's uh, Shane Rock, the CEO of Interfaith Works, former director uh, Jessa, uh, former director at the Jewish Family Services, uh, Ballard Food Bank, uh, Washington Low Income Housing Alliance, Good Neighbor Mission, and uh, who speaks uh, essentially about gaining by giving, uh, motivated by an inherent sense of fairness in his fight against poverty, uh, being motivated to champion the cause of the underdog in order to build a sense of community. He has a philosophy where he pays it forward. He recognizes that which has been given to him, the f- good fortune and the luck, as he calls it, that he has received and sees it as his duty to help neighbors in need in the name of social justice. And by helping build these communities and make them stronger, uh, he has found a sense of profound fulfillment that money simply can't buy. Ultimately, his goal uh, with Interfaith Works and through much of his work has been to make poverty a temporary condition from which families and individuals can recover from, in addition to providing a safety net to help prevent them from even dipping there in the first place. Uh, if there's one takeaway that you may take from this episode with Shane, it's, it's that fulfillment doesn't come uh, through the, the, the uh, numbers in your bank account, but ultimately by the extent to which you're able to use your life to make others, other lives uh, a little bit easier uh, and better, and, and together you move forward in a stronger community. So Shane, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Jordan. It was a pleasure. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com and on iTunes, leave a review of this podcast on iTunes, and listen on Stitcher, SoundCloud, CastBox, Blueberry, Player FM, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Should you wish to comment on this episode, you're welcome to leave a voicemail at 240-630-0380. And the first three minutes of that voicemail may be played in future episodes of Public Interest Podcast. Should you wish to support the podcast, you're welcome to leave a contribution in an amount that you feel comfortable with at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.